Uh, it was August 2020. So those of you in Melbourne will remember that we were in our second of six lockdowns. And this lockdown, I think, broke our spirits. It lasted 111 days with four reasons to leave our houses and without permission to go outside five-kilometer bubbles. And then I read this article with this headline, Melbourne magnate sails away from face masks and lockdown. You might remember this article. Members of two wealthy families sailed their super yacht, the Lady Pamela, from Melbourne to Queensland on a two-week odyssey, stopping at such destinations as Refuge Cove in Wilson's Prom, Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, Jarvis Bay, Coffs Harbour, and finally, the Gold Coast, where they had permission to moor their yacht an exemption from 14-day quarantine. Meanwhile, back in Melbourne, there were hundreds of infections and quite a few deaths from COVID. I remember feeling outraged. Here I was in Curfew City, rationing toilet paper one sheet at a time, and the Melbourne elite were scoffing at the rules, sipping champagne, nibbling on lobster all the way up to sunny Queensland. I was outraged. How dare they, I thought. And then I, I thought for a while, what if they'd invited me? And soon my outrage morphed into envy. I mean, if only I was a friend of the Simmons and Fox families. If only I'd scored an invite on this super yacht to escape from lockdown. I mean, who would have said no? Envy is, is not far from any one of us, is it? Envy is to desire what, what belongs to someone else. But it's more than just a desire. It's this dissatisfied longing, which can build into this resentment of your own situation. And envy, according to the Bible, is a sin that affects every one of us. Psalm 73 is all about envy and what we should do with it. The psalmist goes on this personal journey with God about his own envy and the things he learns are great lessons for us. So we're going to take a look at this psalm, but first let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, we thank you that your word gives us what we need to live a, God, a life of godliness. Help us, Father, penetrate our hearts, convict us, comfort us, bring us life as we hear and do your word. Help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So keep Psalm 73 open. And we're told at the very outset that this is a psalm of Asaph. In the book of 1 Chronicles, Asaph, under King David's rule, is one of the leaders of singing uh, with God's people. He leads uh, singing and praise. And much later in the book of Ezra, Asaph's descendants were also song leaders of Israel. And a number of psalms are attributed to Asaph or his descendants. So this means that this psalm here, 73, was either written by Asaph or one of his descendants. And there are different opinions about what kind of psalm this is. Some think of it as a wisdom psalm, but there's also elements of lament and elements of thanksgiving. And I think all three elements are in this psalm. 
and we'll look at that as we go along. But three things I want to look at today. God is good, but, that's verses 1 to 16, a turning point, verses 17 to 26, and finally, God is enough in verses 27 and 28. Well, firstly, God is good, but, verse 1, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps uh, nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right from the outset, the psalmist highlights his personal dilemma. You know, he knows from observation and experience that God is righteous. He knows that God responds to those who are pure in heart, righteous in his dealings towards him and others. But there is arising for him this personal conflict because it doesn't compute for him when he starts to look at the lifestyle of the unrighteous, the wicked. In fact, instead of being drawn to live a righteous life, he starts to envy the life of the wicked. And he says he was drawn as though to the edge of the cliff. Do I keep living the righteous life or do I plunge into the depths of the wicked life? Now, why would he consider that? Well, just look at how good the wicked have it. Verse 4, they have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. The wicked are seemingly carefree compared to others. They do what they want. They do it when they want. Even if that causes harm to others, they are greedy, they're arrogant, and they get away with it. Say, think of a corrupt government official who grows rich from allowing a foreign company to mine the minerals from a poorer country, only to leave environmental damage and destruction for those who live there. And and not only do the wicked treat others like that, they also treat God with disdain. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. The wicked boast of their godlike power. They think that God himself is powerless and ignorant compared to them. They think of the the Netflix comedian who makes his millions from mocking God and people flocking to lap up their words. Life is good for the wicked, it seems. And here is the the first existential problem for the psalmist. Why do good things happen to bad people? I know God is good, but why does he allow this? They don't treat him well. They don't treat others well. It doesn't make any sense. Remember that saying, cheaters never prosper. Well, apparently they do. 
And they get away with it, and God seems to turn a blind eye to it. And, and this is not an intellectual problem for the psalmist. It's deeply personal, it's, it's emotional. Remember in verse 3, he envies the wicked. His, his heart is torn apart by this grief. Verse 13, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I'd decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Unlike the wicked, the psalmist is trying to live a righteous life. He says his hands and his heart have been clean before God. And yet, where has all this gotten him? Instead of being rewarded from God, he has suffered. We're not told what his affliction is, but he is in emotional and mental turmoil. And he's kept it to himself up to this stage. He knows that he has gone so far that if he unleashed his emotions, his words, he would have damaged God's people around him. His crisis of faith may lead may well have led others to a crisis as well. And here then is the second existential problem for the psalmist. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does a good God not only reward bad people, why does he seem not to care for the people who are doing the right thing? Have you grappled with that? Uh, at the start of the war in Ukraine, Natalia Sidorov was made a widow when her husband Anton, serving in the Ukrainian army, was killed by Russian shells. And she now has three young daughters to raise on her own. And meanwhile, Russian oligarchs make billions of dollars from corrupt government deals. I mean, why would they stop Putin? when they've benefited so much from his regime. And who could blame Natalia if she wondered, what is the point of all this? You try and live a good, simple life, and it leads to suffering. When others cheat, lie, steal, murder, and get away with it. Can you relate to the problem that the psalmist is facing? I'm sure at some point you have. I've worked hard and quietly at my job, and instead of getting promoted, the lazy loudmouths in my department get the promotions ahead of me. I've been trying to do the right thing in my marriage for years, and yet my selfish spouse cheats on me. All I want is some good health to care for my family and to do ministry for God, and yet you give good health to that guy. What do you do when you reach that point? It's a crucial point, isn't it? Remember what the psalmist said, his feet almost slipped. He's standing on the edge of the cliff, and in front of him, and in front of you sometimes, are the carefree, the prosperous, the wicked, and envy is staring you in the face. Should I turn away from God and jump off the cliff? After all, if you can't beat them, how do you finish that? 
you join them. If my husband cheats on me, well, why shouldn't I do the same? If someone else is going to climb over me at work, well, what's stopping me from playing the same game? You know, when someone decides to throw in their faith in God, it started a long time earlier. The decision to stop reading the Bible, to stop praying, to drift in attendance at church and Bible study. You know, everyone has grief in their heart. You just have to listen for a little while. Everyone's got grief. Everyone's heart is torn apart at some point. Everyone has envy scratching at the door, but it's what you do with it. Will you turn away from God? Or will you lean deeper into him? With all the grief, all the turmoil churning in your heart, will you seek his presence? And that is exactly what the psalmist does. Instead of jumping off the cliff and joining the wicked, he turns to God's presence. And this brings us to the turning point. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. For the psalmist's original hearers, the sanctuary represents the temple or or the tabernacle. That's the place where they did business with God. And for us, from the New Testament, we know that the temple is no longer a place, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. We enter God's presence when we trust in Jesus. And now prayer is how we approach God. Reading and hearing God's word is how we listen to God. That is how you lean into God when you are in inner turmoil. Do you pray? Do you cry out to him? Do you open God's word? You see, lament has the opportunity to become wisdom when we turn to God. Uh, Remember in Genesis, Cain um, envied his brother Abel. But his envy became foolishness because he refused to listen, to turn to God. He was warned by God and yet he still chose to turn away and allow his envy to get the better of him. So when he ignored God's warning, he killed his brother Abel. What is the wisdom that the psalmist gains when he enters the sanctuary, when he leans into God? Well, here's one lesson. God is just and the wicked will face his judgment. Verse 18. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. That's the first thing that the psalmist realizes. The wicked will not escape God's judgment. You cannot treat others and God with disdain and get away with it. The seemingly invincible now will be swept away by God's judgment. It may seem like they're so strong and invincible, but for God, the wicked are as short-lived as a bad dream. Romans 2 verse 6 says, God will repay each person, person according to what they've done. 
To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There is comfort in God's judgment. Now, that's not what we normally think, is it? Now, how is it comforting? Because normally we think of uh, God's judgment as somewhat harsh, a bit unnecessary, a bit over the top. But I think that's because many of us, particularly here in a country like Australia, we have not experienced a great deal of injustice. But God's justice is comforting. Let me show you why. Uh, In recent years, maybe you've been following this, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell have been found guilty of having groomed teenage girls for abuse by an elite social circle of their high society friends. Uh, This systematic sex trafficking took place between 1994 and 2004. In 2019, Epstein died in his prison cell attributed to suicide while he was awaiting criminal conviction. Maxwell was convicted recently in December on five counts of sex trafficking. She faces 50 years in jail, which will effectively be the rest of her life. The U.S. attorney said upon her conviction, justice is done. And both Maxwell and Epstein still face God's judgment. Now I want you to imagine what it was like for those teenage girls and their families after they were abused. Completely powerless compared to the power couple. You know, Maxwell and uh, Epstein had connections with presidents and princes, government officials and Hollywood celebrities. And during the 90s and 2000s, they were seemingly invincible because of their connections. Now think of how comforting it is now for these women and their families that even though it's been 20 or 30 years since their abuse, that the wicked will not prosper forever. The wicked will not escape judgment even if they escape earthly judgment like Epstein, they still face the wrath of God's judgment. Friends, judgment is comforting. And it's comforting to you as well to know that God knows. He knows how you've been sinned against. He knows those who are escaping. He knows that those who have sinned against you will not escape his judgment. He sees all, he knows all, even when no one else does. But there's still more to learn for the psalmist at this turning point. Verse 21, when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Now, here's the second thing he realizes that he himself was wrong. His own heart was wrong. He doesn't hold back, does he? When he describes himself, he was so full of self-pity that he was stupid before God. No better than a, a brute beast. His bitter envy could have led him to great foolishness, but there is mercy with God if you're willing to be honest and humble. 
Uh, you know those times when someone points out something you've done wrong? You know, there's this window where you have this opportunity to be honest and just to say, you know what, you're right. I'm really sorry. I've done the wrong thing. And you know, when you do that, it, it, it gets better, doesn't it? Things improve when you do that. But in that window, often what we do is we stubbornly refuse to admit that we've done the wrong thing. We, we double down on our pride. And what happens? It gets worse, doesn't it? Because we've got to kind of hide the shame, the face. I wonder if that's what you're doing with God and with others. Stubbornly insisting that you're right, that everyone else is wrong, even though deep down you know you're wrong. And how is it working out for you? You see, if you're honest, God is merciful. Luke records that there were two other criminals crucified with Jesus. Uh, crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of criminals or insurrectionists. So these two guys crucified with Jesus, they were not angels, okay? But here they are, they're, they're facing this brutal judgment. That's what crucifixion was, a brutal judgment. And it represents, though, this turning point opportunity for these men. One of the men doubled down on his pride. Instead of being honest about his predicament, his situation, he chooses to heap insult on Jesus. But for the other criminal, it is a turning point. Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, God is committed to justice. But when you turn to him in honest repentance, you will find him merciful. Have you reached a turning point in your life? You see, what you do next matters. Honesty that leads to wisdom and life or stubborn pride that leads to destruction. The psalmist has now moved from the turmoil and distress of his heart to a very different place. In fact, he's done a complete turnaround, verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want you to see the before and after for this psalmist. His feet almost slipped in verse 2, but now God holds his hand. His innermost being, that is his heart, was wounded in verse 21, but now God is the strength of his heart. He envied the prosperity of the wicked in verse 3, but now he desires nothing else but God in verse 25. This psalm is the journey of his heart. 
Look at how his heart traveled in this journey. In his head, he could always say in verse 1 that God is good to the pure in heart. But his experience led him to question that for his own life in verse 13. Did I purify my heart for nothing? And this led him to a place of bitter turmoil in his heart, verse 21. But after turning to God with his conflicted heart, he concludes with verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Where does envy start? In your heart. The root of envy is a dissatisfied heart. And you know, there's two solutions, isn't there? One is to change your circumstances The other is to change your heart. And by the end of this psalm, there is no indication that the psalmist's circumstances have changed. The wicked are still prospering. He is still afflicted. But what's changed? His heart. A great man once said, lasting contentment is a changed heart not changed circumstances. Well, actually, I came up with that, but feel free to use it. But it's true, isn't it? You know, our circumstances change all the time, don't they? All the time. Imagine basing your contentment on your circumstances. If only I had this, then I'd be happy. If only my heart had what they have, then I would be happy. But you know it's a lie, don't you? Because you get it, and then you want something else, don't you? Well, imagine if what your heart longed for was always reliable, always trustworthy, always faithful, always present, the same yesterday and today and forever. What if God was the desire of your heart? Well, then you could have peace in any circumstance. And then it wouldn't matter what anyone else had because in the end, you knew you had something that no one could take from you, God himself. Friends, what do you value more? Things from God or God himself? And what if the thing that you've been looking for all this time is none other than God himself? Well, this brings us to our final point. God is enough. Verse 27, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. And the psalmist reaches the conclusion of his heart's journey. The wicked will face God's judgment. But as for me, God is enough. I don't want prosperity from God. I want presence with God. God is enough. Friends, have you wondered why God is allowing you to go through what you're going through? Where people around you have better health and better wealth, they've got nicer houses and nicer spouses. Perhaps God wants to teach you this. 
that the answer to your envy is that God has been and always will be enough. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Holocaust survivor who suffered at the hands of the wicked. Her family were devout Christians who saved the lives of many Jews until they were turned into the Nazis, informed. Her father died 10 days later in prison. Corrie and her sister went to Ravensbrück concentration camp where they were treated brutally. They witnessed horrific suffering and despite all this, they continued to minister to the women around them. And Betsy died in that camp at the end of 1944 and just nine days later, Corrie was released. And when she reached home, she learned that her nephew had also died at the hands of the Nazis. You know, who would have blamed Corrie ten Boom if her heart had become embittered by grief and envy at what the wicked did to her. Instead, after the war, she set up rehabilitation centers to help former concentration camp survivors. She ministered even to her former enemies. She wrote books. She traveled the world speaking on God's forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you live like that? What is the secret to living like that with peace and joy and purpose and contentment despite all the suffering she went through? Because it wasn't always easy when you read her story for Corrie to live like that. Here's the secret. She once said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. When everything is stripped away, You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Who do I have in heaven but you? And nothing on earth do I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we often do a good job of hiding our envy from others. But you see all, you know all. You know we envy. We envy those who don't worship you. We look at their lives and we wonder why can't that be us? But you've reminded us of your just judgment. that the wicked will not prosper. Father, please spare us from jumping off the cliff, from turning away from you. Help us to lean in on you that we might learn the most important lesson of all, that you are always enough for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.